everybody. Welcome to Restoration Life Church's Bible study. It's really good to see you tonight. Tonight we're continuing our study of Romans chapter 9 and we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about a very interesting subject. We're going to talk about the hardening of the heart and what part God plays in that many times because scripture says there are times when God is actively involved in hardening our hearts. So what is that all about and how does that work? What does that look like? We're going to dig into the scripture to find out. I know it's going to be very interesting and it's going to be very challenging for us. So grab your Bible, open your heart and listen to whatever the Lord may want to say to you tonight. Last week, we uh, were in the middle of Romans chapter nine. And last week we introduced a subject that comes up in Romans chapter nine. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about it tonight. I I want to talk about the hardening of hearts. Um, because, because here's the issue when you, when you look at the, uh, the, the, the concept of hardening of hearts, what, what's hard for us sometimes to deal with and understand is what the Bible says. The issue is the Bible says that God hardens people. Uh, the scripture is really clear on this issue. God actually does harden people. He hardens their hearts and that's what scripture teaches over and over again. But my question is when we hear that. What's important, we, we have to, uh, the question we have to ask is, what does that actually mean? What is meant uh, when, the, when the Bible says that God hardens people, uh, or, you know, does that make us mere pawns? Tonight we're going to try to bring together a number of different passages regarding this subject. And, but l- let me just start with this. This is a big and, a, and an important topic. And, and as always, I'm not claiming to be infallible. Uh, so I want you to weigh my words by what the scripture says. And in fact, you should always, you should always do that. Um, uh, and, and just let me be the person who's commenting on it. I'm, I'm a commentator. And so I could be wrong, but this is, this is my best understanding of the topic. And I'm trying to approach it with grace and wisdom. And I'm going to, I'm going to be teaching a lot of stuff tonight. And then at the end, I'm going to summarize nine truths about God hardening people from scripture. So I'm going to go through all these verses, we're going to pull out these truths, and then I'll summarize them at the end. And, and so by the end, when we get to that point, hopefully you'll be like, ah, and it'll just click into place, uh, but it'll take us a little while to get there. So, uh, so let's just jump in. Well, I want to start by uh, just going, having a quick review of Romans 9 so far, so that we can understand the passage that we're talking about tonight, about God hardening. Uh, Paul brings up a problem at the beginning of Romans 9. And the problem is that God has promises and a plan for Israel, but all of Israel hasn't been saved. They, they haven't received Messiah. In fact, not even the majority have received the Messiah, Jesus. So now, now this may not seem like a big deal to you, but, but even today, many Jewish people will reject Jesus quickly simply based on the fact that the majority of Jews have not received him as Messiah. And to them, that's all the evidence that they need. They say, well, the majority of the Jews didn't receive Jesus as Messiah, so he's obviously not the Messiah. Closed book. Don't need to consider his credentials. Don't need to consider the text of the Old Testament. None of that stuff. That's all I need to know. So so Romans 9 is a great passage for explaining this issue. And if you ever come against, uh, come up uh, in a conversation with a, uh, a Jewish person who has that objection, understanding Romans 9 is going to be very helpful for you in, in talking about this issue. 
But Romans 9 starts off verses 1 through 3 where Paul basically says that he wishes all the Jews would be saved and his heart is breaking for them to, stay, to that they would be saved. This is what he desires for greatly and it's what God also desires. Then verses 4 and 5 he talks about all those things that God has for the Jewish people, God's blessing uh, uh, for, upon the Jewish people and all those things that he mentions, the adoption, the, the glory, the covenants of the law, the, the service of God and the promises, all, all, all of these belong to Israel. We talked about those last week. So, so Paul wants them to be saved. God wants to be saved and God has all these promises for them. So, so now you see the tension. He's, he's building a case for why not all of Israel receives the gospel, not even a majority. So first, in, in verses 6 through 9, uh, by the way, this, this case that he builds goes all the way through chapter 11. And so it's going to be continuing to build. And sometimes you read chapter 9 and you're, you're just like, I don't get this, I don't get this. You, you just got to keep reading because it all comes together when you look at it all in the big picture. But in verses 6 through 9 of, of chapter 9, he talks about how Isaac and Ishmael show us that the Old Testament, uh, that the Old Testament teaches that the selection of God, the, the choosing of God, the promise of God does not simply fall upon uh, every physical descendant of Abraham. Again, we talked about that last week. So it's not just by blood alone, but it's by promise. Then verses 10 through 13, he talks about the issues of Jacob and Esau. And the point is there that it's not by works. So in verses 6 uh, through 9, it's not by blood. In verses 10 through 13, it's not by works. We see that in, that in verse 11, he said, not of works, but of him who calls the promise uh, uh, comes upon them. And I know this very quick, but this is a review. So uh, verses 14 through 16, he demonstrates that God's promise falls upon us through mercy. It comes through mercy. God has chosen mercy to be the vessel through which mankind will be saved, not by earning it and not by birth. Now, now the examples that were given, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, these examples, as we talked about last week, they're not about salvation, but they're about God's promises. However, the application for us is about salvation. And in case I, uh, if I've already lost you already, I, I taught all of this last week, and so you can go online and catch it again. Uh, but, but the point is, I want to make sure we understand as we get into this, I'm showing you that there's a Jewish context in Romans of which we need to be aware in order to understand it properly. And I think very often Romans chapter 9 is largely misunderstood by many people because they don't recognize its Jewishness. So the point is this, the, the audience who cares about the Jewish people uh, like God does, th this is to them, this is an explanation of why things are happening the way they are using Old Testament truths to explain that. So, so that in the process, the, the, the Jew is strategically drawn in, in into accepting Jesus as Messiah because the Old Testament said that this was what was going to happen. And, and he'll keep doing this throughout the next couple of cha uh, chapters. So, so in essence, God, God can offer salvation to anybody he wants, just like he did with the promises, and he chooses to whom it goes. Now, to whom... Does he choose to offer the promises, uh, uh, this, this promise of salvation? The answer is Jews and Gentiles. And that's the, that's the key that he's, that he's making, the key point he's making over again, over and over again. And, and that's what Paul is building his case towards. He's trying to make a point that 
This is not a narrowing of the promise, but it's actually an expansion of it. The, the promise of salvation in, protect, in particular goes out to all people God, for, by God's mercy, Jews and Gentiles. And, and that's sort of your spoiler, uh, spoiler alert, it's sort of the key that it's not of works, it's not of your genealogy, but it's by God's mercy that you'll be saved. And then verse 32, it will explain why many of the Jews in, partic- in particular did not receive this gospel message. And it says it's because uh, it, they, they did not seek it by faith. <clears throat> they were relying on their genealogy. They're relying on their works, and they did not receive it by faith. So we'll talk about, uh, he'll talk about faith being instrumental. Now with that background, background in mind and that context in mind, what I want to do is I want to read the passage we're focusing on tonight. I'm going to pick it up in verse 17 of Romans chapter 9. This is what it says. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, <clears throat> excuse me, I have, heart, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. <clears throat> Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. There's, there's that concept of God hardening people. Uh, verse 19, you will say, then say to me, why does he yet find fault? For who can resist his will? Rather, O man, who are you to answer back to God? Shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does the potter not have power over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he previously prepared for glory, even us whom he has called, and there it is, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He says he's called not just Jews, but he's also called Gentiles. Now, now if you didn't know the Jewish Gentile context, that, that last verse wouldn't really click. But because we've talked about it so much in here, you should be like, obviously, obviously, because we understand the contextual ap- applications of the Jewish and Gentile dynamics and the promises of Israel. Just, you're getting it right. So uh, let's let's just dive into what I want to focus on tonight, which is the, the hardening of, of God that is very clearly discussed in this passage. And we're going to deal with some very specific questions. So I want to read verses 17 and 18 again, because this is where it first comes up. He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. God hardens. Now, now Paul has a very specific reason for bringing this up. The the point that Paul is driving towards is is that he's going to say, and we'll get to this, you'll see this, he's going to say that God has hardened Israel. And to, to make that point, he's using the example of Pharaoh. And the, now the Jews, when they read this, they're, they're going to be, be like, well, yeah, of course, obviously God hardened Pharaoh. That's Exodus 101. And, and Paul goes, God can harden whomever he wants. And they reply, yes, that's right. He can. And then he says, and, and he's hardened some of Israel. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. That's a biblical idea, but that, that God hardens people. But I don't like that very much. That's the response. So this is the tension. This is the struggle that the Jewish uh, person 
would be going through, looking and saying, why didn't more of my people receive Messiah? So here, here's some of our questions to help understand what God's hardening is really all about. I'm going to just give you these questions, and we're going to look at, at most of these. That, uh, hopefully, maybe all of them we'll see um, tonight as we go through this. Question number one, does this mean that man has no free will? Like, am I just a pawn? Am I uh, like an actual pawn in a chess game that God moves me over here and causes me to think what I think and do what I do? Is that not, is, is all, all of that that I think and do, is that not really my will? Now, now, if you've been part of this study, if you know me at all, you know that I fully believe in free will and I think the Bible clearly teaches it, but that's a question that some people bring up when they read this. Number two, does God harden people who don't deserve it? I mean, he gives mercy to people who don't deserve it. Does he harden people who don't deserve it? Is, is it just like mercy in that sense? Number three, does, does God's hardening relate to salvation? I mean, he hardened Pharaoh to not let the Israelites go, but does he harden people in regard to salvation? Does he harden them to keep them from coming to Christ? And, and that's a hard question. And honestly, it's, it's difficult to find specific answers for it, but hopefully we can do that tonight. And, and number four, what, what other biblical examples are there of hardening? And there are several. And I'd like to, look, like to look at some of them to help round out our understanding of the concept. And then, of course, uh, the, the question you need to be asking every time you read a passage like this, what was Paul's ultimate point in Romans? Why did he bring up this issue? What is he trying to say through this? So let's start with the example that Paul mentioned. He mentioned Pharaoh. He's giving him an, as an example of someone who was hardened. Uh, why is Pharaoh brought up as an example to prove Paul's point that God can harden whom, whomever he wants? I mean, he, he, he can harden the king of Egypt if he wants. He, he can harden whomever he wants. So we're going to get into Exodus now. So, so turn back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 4 is where we're going to start. And what I'm going to do is we're going to go, flip through several passages in, in Exodus, all of them in order. And I think you'll want to follow along because it, it'll help connect the dots on this issue of hardening. And I think Pharaoh is an example of God hardening judicially. As we, we mentioned it last week, um, the, something that we call judicial hardening or hardening because you deserve it. Uh, that's, the, that's, kind of, uh, that, that's the idea of this kind of hardening. It's, it's not simply, it's, it's not like an unbiased, random hardening where God just hardens you just because. Uh, it, it's a hardening because you deserve it, therefore you, that's what you get. So let's read, starting in Exodus chapter 4, beginning, uh, well, let's read verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, so this is, he's calling Moses, getting, telling, sending him back to Egypt. He says, when you, when you go to return into Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before, before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he, will, he shall not let the people go. Now the word harden in the original language here uh, literally means to strengthen. That's what it means. So harden may not be the best translation for us in, in, in English, but it means to strengthen or it means to firm something up. So what what's, God is saying, he's, he's firming 
Pharaoh's heart. He's solidifying something in its current position because when you harden something, in this sense, you're solidifying something that's in its already current, already focused position. So, so Pharaoh's heart is already defiant against God. He's already rebellious against God, and, and God's going to stiffen that. God's going to make him even more stubborn in that. So, so it, it, hardening in this case, it, it's not to cause Pharaoh to become evil, but it does sort of, sort of lock him down in, into place. And that's my understanding of hardening uh, it, to solidify a position. So God says, I'm going to harden him. But let's keep reading. In Exodus chapter 5, now I'm going to read this passage for the sake of time, but in Exodus 5, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he, sa- and, he's, and he says to him, tell Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And he just says, no. Now, there's nothing in chapter 5 of Exodus. There's nothing in there about Pharaoh's heart being hard and at that point necessarily. Nothing about God hardening it. None of that. He just simply says no. And the implication of the text is that he was already positioned that way, already inclined that way, to, to, to start with in, in the very beginning. And really, when we talk about hardening of hearts, this is really what happens in our lives. It's not necessarily you start with a hard heart, but there's something in your heart that is rebellious, and you begin to make choices and reject God. And over time, you harden your heart, and then God begins to, if you don't repent, He begins to firm up the choices that you've made. We'll, we'll get more into that later. Turn to Exodus 7, verse 3. While you're turning there, let me, let me point out the fact that Pharaoh resisted immediately and naturally. And it's very, that's very likely why God raised him up as Pharaoh and not somebody else, because he wanted someone who would resist him. That's the implication in the whole story here. God's, God's doing something like playing a chess game in this. He's, he's putting Pharaoh in a position in order to do things through him, because in his resistance, God is going to be able to put his power and his name on, on, on display through Pharaoh. So, so the point, the, the implication there is that we don't have a passive God who's just letting things happen, but he is interacting with people. Exodus 7 verse 3, God says again, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now, this time it's a different Hebrew word uh, used for harden, and it, and it literally means to make hard. Now, I want you to notice something here. So far, God has twice said that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. But but here's the question. Has God hardened his heart yet? No. No, he said he's going to. And this is where I believe some some, uh, commentators get it wrong because they act as if these statements uh, are, are God actually doing it. When God's saying he'll do it and God actually doing it are two different things. He says, he says, I will do it. That's future tense. Let's read on. Uh, Skip down to verse 13 of Exodus chapter 7. Here, Pharaoh responds to to God and it says, Nonetheless, Pharaoh's heart hardened so that he would not listen to them just as the Lord said. Now, in this case, it's not God doing the action, is it? This is simply, and it's, it's not even Pharaoh doing it. This is simply Pharaoh's heart growing hard. Pharaoh's not doing it. God's not doing it. It's just the natural result of what's going on. It's a way to think of it is, is a sense that we would, we, we think, we use the term nowadays of a seared conscience. 
It's that kind of idea that, that, uh, that, that it's the natural result. It's a natural, natural hardening when we resist God, when we say no. And, and there are some that would say, well, obviously God did that. But then the problem with that is that there's another group of people that would say, well, obviously Pharaoh did that. And, and so I'm just going to stick with the text and, and say that no one is given credit for this. It just seems as though this part of the hardening of the heart is just the natural result of the actions that are going on and the things that Pharaoh is doing. So maybe it's not intentional. Maybe it's not something he said, I'm going to harden my heart. But it's just a result of Pharaoh hearing truths of God and then rejecting him and then his heart begins to grow hard. Look at the very next verse, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So now his heart is hard. Now this, this again, a different word in the Hebrew that's translated hardened, and it, it literally means heavy. So his heart is heavy. It's growing like a stone. Look at, at, verse, seven, at verse 22, same chapter. Nevertheless, the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. So the magicians are, are copying the, the plagues. They're copying everything they can that they can copy uh, that God did through Moses. And it says, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, again, God hasn't done anything to Pharaoh's heart directly at this point in time. That's not what the text says. It's just that his heart grew hard. Now, now look at, at Exodus 8.15 because now there's something that changes because now this is where Pharaoh actually hardens himself. Not God, but Pharaoh. Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. And did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the construction of this sentence is different. It's, it's not just that his heart passively grew hard that with no person or new, no agent doing the hardening. But, 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 uh, but, but now Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And scripture talks about how you can harden your own heart. And this, this is an example of it. Look at 8.19. Exodus 8.19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Nevertheless, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had said. You know, one of the, one of the keys that you'll see over and over again is, is uh, you see it repeated over and over again. He did not listen to them. He refused to listen to God. He refused to obey. So there's this active uh, rejection of God. And in this time, in this verse, again, this time it's just a, a passive growing hard. No active person get, getting credit for it. Look at 8.32, Exodus 8.32. Nevertheless, Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, uh, nor, nor would he let the people go. So who's hardening his heart now? Pharaoh is. All right, now look at 9.7, Exodus 9.7. Pharaoh sent, and there was not one of the livestock of the children of Israel dead, and the heart of Pharaoh was hardened so that he did not let the people go. So again, no one is specifically named as hardening Pharaoh's heart. So far, what we have is we have Pharaoh's heart becoming hard for no identifiable reason other than he's rebelling against God. And then we have a couple of instances where Pharaoh is making his own heart hard. And then finally, in Exodus 9, after all of these events, we finally see God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I think... 
that the order is important. This is how God inspired it to be written, so we should take note. But Exodus 9.12 says, Moreover, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he did not listen to him, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the same word that, that, that was used before that means to strengthen or to firm up. And I think this is clearly an example of judicial hardening because after all of this time and all of these things that Pharaoh had done, do you think Pharaoh deserved to have his heart hardened by God at this point? I mean, let's see. He, he oppressed the Israelites as slaves. He, he made things even worse on them during that process. He resisted God. He hardened his own heart. And then finally, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. I think he deserved it. And I think most of us would probably agree on that. This is a judgment of God. This is a judicial hardening that God gives to him. And then, then in Exodus 9.34, Pharaoh is going to harden his, his own heart again. It says, however, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Now they're the ones doing the hardening. L- let me give you one more. And this is the last one I'll read. But, but, but there are more. You can go through and read it because it keeps going on like this throughout the book of Exodus. But let's go to Exodus 10, 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I might show these signs of mine before him. Now, now God says, I have, past tense, hardened Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of his servants. What's interesting here is, is that this is just a few verses after chapter 9, verse 34, where it said that Pharaoh and his servants hardened their own hearts. And this is the first time now in, in, in Exodus 9 where his servants are brought up with, with, at the same time. So Pharaoh and his servants harden their hearts. Then a few verses later, God says, I hardened the hearts of, of, heart of Pharaoh and his servants. So what it seems to be like is that by this point in time, there's some sort of synergism going on there. There's something going on where Pharaoh is, is, is hardening his heart. Pharaoh is doing the hardening. And then God is also doing a hardening at the same time. And I just, I think that just seems to be what the scripture says. Uh, and, and some people want to avoid that. Some people want to make it all Pharaoh's fault or they want to say, oh, it's all God's sovereign uh, will in making uh, the heart, uh, uh, in hardening his heart. But it seems to me here that it shows that, that both are happening. In 10.1, God seems to be taking credit for Pharaoh and his servants are hardening their own hearts in, in 9.34. So it seems to be both. So what we see here is we see God's sovereignty in that he picked Pharaoh and he raised him up knowing that he would resist him. He says, you, I pick you to be Pharaoh of Egypt knowing that you're going to resist me and I'm going to harden your heart. However, I think it's safe to say that you deserve it, Pharaoh. And that seems to be the teaching that and that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but I just want to stick to what the text says. And, and we're, going to, we're going to see that that's, a, that's significant because it supports the idea of the free will of man, not just being a pawn of God when we realize that both, act, both parties were involved in this process. But let's read on in verse 19 of Romans 9. Uh, so a- after bringing up Pharaoh, he brings up another issue that we talked about last week. So I'm, I'm not going to belabor the point tonight because we talked more about it last week. But I, w- I do want to cover this in order. So I don't want to skip this, this passage. But verse 19 says this. You will say to me, you will then say to me, why does he yet find fault for who can resist his will? 
Rather, O man, who are you to answer back to God? Shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? This is great, right? Who do you think you are is what he says. This is the who do you think you are passage. So you say, Dave, are you saying that God can do whatever he wants and he's above impeachment, that he's above appeal, that he's above my judgment? Is that what you're saying? Yes, finally you get it. Of course he's above your appeals and above your impeachments. There is no hashtag not my God. That's not there. The the God is right and I'm wrong. If I disagree with him, it's because I'm wrong. If I think he's unjust, it's because I'm wrong. Uh, I mean, look at me. How How much do I know? You know, I don't understand why apples have skin. You know, and let alone why God hardened heart, the Pharaoh's heart. I don't know these things. It's like Job. You know, when, when Job finally stood before God and he suddenly realized, he said, you know what? I spoke of things that I don't know anything about. There's an element of humility that we have to have here. I, I, and I just want to say skeptics like to attack the Bible. They like to attack God and, and, and say that he's not just. Uh, and, and when they do that, here's what they're saying. They say, They say, hypothetically speaking, let's just say that the God of the Bible exists and and, and that he's really there and he really did all that stuff in the Bible. And then they would say, I think God is morally wrong. And and I'm like, your hypothetical is is insane. It's philosophically bankrupt to think that you can make moral judgment on the God who created you. He's the one who gave you even a sense of morality. It's like the ant shaking its fist at the sky. It doesn't make any sense. And, and listen, I want you to know, I'm not here to defend God. He doesn't need me to defend him. Uh, I'm not here to defend God hardening Pharaoh, and I'm not here to attack it. That's, that's not my place. I want to explain it to the best of my ability. I, want to, I understand the idea of hardening biblically, but, but I'm not here to defend it. You know, I, I'm, I'm not up here thinking, you know, I have to explain this the right way so that people will like it. Because the truth is, if you don't like it, then you need to change your opinion. If I don't like it, I need to change my opinion because I don't know any way to, better way to put it but to say that God is God. And if He is God, if He created us, if He has made all things, then He gets to set the rules. Uh, and we'll, look at, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But th- this passage, though, when it talks about... about uh, uh, you know, what God can do and what he can't do. And, you know, and that, that, that we, we don't get to call him into account for anything. But it does not imply, it does not say, it does not mean that God's hardening is arbitrary. And that's a mistake some people make. This is not saying that God hardens people for no reason. All it's saying is you have no place to argue with God about it if he does. However, you, you can still seek to understand it and learn from it. Uh, so, so nowhere is it taught that God's hardening is arbitrary. His mercy comes not according to works. The past, this passage clearly taught that God gives us mercy not according to works. But, but it did not say the same thing about those who got hardened, did it? I mean, read the passage. It didn't say that God hardens people not according to works. It, it, it only said that about mercy. In fact, the truth is perhaps more people deserve to be hardened than actually do get hardened. 
So, so the Bible here is not teaching uh, unconditional election. We've talked about that over the next last couple of weeks. Nor is it teaching unconditional reprobation, which is or you know another big word for damnation, being sent to hell. It's talking about how God hardens some people, and it's it's just teaching that the, that that mercy is not of works. It's not about our genealogy, and then God hardens whomever he, he wants, and that you have no valid complaint against God. There, there's no version of the story where you get to say that God made a mistake and he's at fault. His acts are not subject to our review, but we should be learning from them. And that's what we learned so far in Romans 9, and more of that is in the study from last week. You can find that on our Facebook, on the, on the video there, or on restorationlifechurch.tv. You can find it there. But here's the question for the rest of tonight's study. What does he do? I agree that he can do whatever he wants. And he's unimpeachable in that. But what does he do? It's not arbitrary hardening, as we'll find in the text. Let's, let's keep reading here. Verse 21. Does the potter not have power over the clay to make the same lump, make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Simple answer: Yes. Yes. Does does not God have the ability and the right to do whatever He wants with the things He makes? You know, think of it this way: If I draw a picture that I don't like. I can crumple it up and I can throw it away. I have that right. It is my picture. But if you crumple it up and you throw it away, that's wrong. Because that was my picture. So the simple answer is, yes, God has that right. However, let's get in more detail in verse 22 about how God does this. How does he handle the clay? Uh, which is us, by the way. Verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the, known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he previously prepared for glory, even us whom he has called, not, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, I know there are some teachers out there that, that look at the first two words of that passage that says, what if? And they go, well, it's entirely possible that verses 22 and 23 aren't even how God does things because it says, what if? It's an if. And I don't think that's the teaching of the passage. I think it's, it's, it's more, you know, a what if that's a hypothetical that's actually true. It's more, it's, it's more to me, it's more along the lines of, say, of saying, what is it to you if God does this? That because, because it's not your, your right to choose us. In fact, I think this is the climax of a point toward which he's been driving. And, and the point that he's been driving toward is God has the right to do what he wants with Israel, including hardening some of Israel and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And that's the point. And this passage is about salvation. Earlier, when, we, when, when it was talking about Jacob and Esau, it wasn't about salvation. It was about the promises of God to Israel. But this, however, is about salvation. I mean, read the text. It, says, talk, it talks about the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. This, this is a salvation issue, isn't it? So, so let's look at it. Now, there are two different groups that are, that are talked about here. However, lest we get confused... The two different groups 
are not those upon whom God has heart has mercy and those whom God hardens. That's not the two groups that he's trying to compare. Yes, God can have mercy on whomever he wants and he can harden whomever he wants, but those are not the two groups in this passage. That's not supported by the text. There are, these are, there are two different groups. Yes, and, and God has mercy on one of these groups. That's in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So he has mercy on, on those. However, what does, does verse 22 describe someone God hardens actively. He says, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. No, it doesn't say anything about God doing anything. It doesn't say that God hardened them. And if you think that's what it says, then I think you read the passage wrong. The words don't mean that. Uh, because I think we need to understand the difference between an active verb and a passive verb. So we're going to do a little grammar. Very short. You already started yawning. Um, an active verb is something that I'm doing. I ran a mile. I didn't. <laughs> if you ever, that's almost laughable to think about me running a mile. Uh, but, but that's an active verb. I did something. And that's the kind of thing we see in verse 23, where God is actively working in the lives of the saved. He said, in order to make known the riches of the glory on the vessels of mercy, which he previously prepared, specifically saying God is doing the action. He previously prepared them for glory. However, look at verse 22. Who's doing the action in verse 22? There it just says vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Doesn't say who who prepared it. This, This is a passive action. God is not doing this. They're prepared. By what? They're prepared by circumstances, by their own choices. They're prepared by all all manner of different kinds of things, but it doesn't say that God is doing it. So what we see is God works in the lives of the saved, but in the unsaved, he just allows this to happen. That's what's being taught here. So there are two different groups of people And what does God do? God endures one group with much patience. So so God is enduring them with patience. That's his treatment of the unsaved. That's not hardening. He's not automatically hardening unsaved people. Not that God couldn't harden some of them, but, but that's not what the passage teaches. Then there's the saved, the group over here in verse 23, and God's action is that he is the one preparing them beforehand for glory. And now, now if you see those verbs, I think it changes your understanding of the entire passage. And you also recognize that what this is, it's, a, it's not a description of hardening versus mercy. It's mercy versus not mercy. It's not that, so hardening doesn't necessarily mean unsaved in this context. And that's the mistake a lot of people make. So he he treats them these ways for two different purposes. To the unsaved, he's going to show his wrath and power, which, by the way, is actually good. Uh, It's good that he shows his wrath because his his wrath is glorious. My wrath is bad. But God's wrath is glorious because it's righteous and it's good and it restores righteousness and it brings justice and then for the saved, he wants to make known the riches of his glory on these vessels of mercy. The riches of his glory. So that's a very strong differentiation between the saved and the unsaved. Now, um, I'm going I'm to skip down just a little bit. 
to get, make sure I have time. Uh, we'll, he does talk some about uh, there about uh, about some of these ideas of of, of the Jews and the Gentiles. We're going to get into that that later. So I'm going to move ahead of that. But I'll just say this: uh, he, he makes the point, and he he, rem, he reminds us that Israel is at least partially hardened while the gospel is being opened up to the Gentiles. We'll get more into that later. Now, now that I've said all that, you probably have more questions than answers, especially as fast as we went. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want us to look at some other biblical passages related to hardening uh, to round out our understanding of how God does this. Because, because as, you, as you read it, you, you realize that Romans 9 gives us actually very little information about hardening. It just brings up the topic very blatantly, but it doesn't tell us a lot about it. But there are, however, other passages of Scripture that do. So we're going to look at some of those. First off, related to judicial hardening, we have Romans 1. We, we spent some time weeks ago on Romans 1. But Romans 1 is in the same context as Romans 9. It's, it's Romans 9. It's the same book, right? And it's relating to similar issues. So let me read it to you. Beginning in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then he describes these men who suppress the truth through unrighteousness. This this is an action they're taking, right? For what may be known about God is clear to them since, since God has shown it to them. The invisible things about him, his eternal power and deity have been clearly seen since the creation of the world and are understood by the things that are made so that they are without excuse. So, so that's general revelation. Uh, they know there's a God. He's made it clear through his creation. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him or give thanks to him as God. But, and, 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 and look at this progression here, uh, as, they, as they rejected the truth of God, it says they became futile in their imaginations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. And, and now here's the judicial hardening. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. Notice the word, therefore. Because of their rejection of God, gave them, uh, uh, then God gave them up to uncleanness. Jude, that's judicial hardening. It's a response. That's a, that's a judgment. That's the wrath of God being poured out in that situation. Uh, God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies among themselves. They turned the truth of God into a lie. And now this was their choice. They turned the truth of God into a lie and, and worshiped and served the, create, the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, did you catch that? For this reason, because they chose idols over God, God gave them up to dishonorable passion. So their sin is taking over. They become slaves of sin, and that's also judicial hardening. That's God giving them over. It's, he's firming up the direction of their heart. The things that they have chosen, he's saying, fine, if that's what you really want, I will give it to you. I will, I will make you want that even more. As, as an act of judgment with the hope of mercy, because the whole point is that he knows it's going to lead them to, to a, a, a destruction in a point of despair that maybe at that point, how many of you have known somebody that had to hit rock bar, bottom before they would ever turn to God? So that's kind of the same idea there. 
Uh, it says, the women exchange the natural function for what is against nature. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural function of the woman, burned in their lust toward one another, men doing with men that which is shameful and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And, and then here's another judicial hardening passage. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not proper. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. I don't want to acknowledge you, God. So God gives them over to this judicial hardening. You know what? This, this is the same as what I see with Pharaoh, isn't it? God judicially hardened Pharaoh in a similar fashion. It's very consistent throughout Scripture. It's an example of judicial hardening because both parties are at play. Just as with Pharaoh. Here man is choosing rebellious things over God and then God giving them over to those things as a judgment. That's the same thing that happened with Pharaoh. Another verse that really strongly supports this is 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 10 through 12. And in this passage, you know, we're talking about end times and the Antichrist when he comes and God describes it describes it this way. And with all deception of unrighteousness among those who perish, because they did not receive the love for the truth that they might be saved. So, 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 so there's deception. Why? Because they did not receive the love for the truth that they might be saved. So, they, so that means they reject the gospel. Verse 11. Therefore, God will send them a strong delusion. Therefore, there's that word. There's a reason for the hardening. Mercy and grace comes freely. You don't deserve it, but hardening, oh, you, you earn every bit of it. Therefore, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all might be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So they rejected the truth, and they're given over to the law, to the lie. Now, now I want to bring it over to Jesus, because Jesus also, he actually talked about hardening as well. Uh, and once I share this with you, you're going to, be to begin to realize how much Jesus actually does this. But turn over to Mark chapter 4. Now, let me ask you this. What was a common uh, public way, what, what was Jesus' common public way of teaching things? He would teach in parables, right? Parables. And, and you, you may even be thinking about the passage I'm about to read But Jesus taught in parables, and in Mark chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, Jesus tells the disciples why he teaches in parables publicly and then privately explains things to them in more detail. Look at this. He said to them, to you, to the disciples, is given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, everything is said in parables so that... So there's a reason. So that seeing they they may see and not perceive... And hearing they may hear and not understand, get this phrase, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Has anybody ever struggled with that phrase? To understand what in the world? Because I see no way to interpret this other than to say Jesus taught in parables so that the masses that were hearing him would not understand and not accept the message that he's he's saying to them. That's what it says. Now, Now, there's more to the story. So don't get, don't get too nervous because there's more to the story, but we have to understand that's what the text says. This is the teaching of Scripture, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. You know, Pharaoh was not necessarily hardened against salvation. 
He was hardened against the letting the people of Israel go. However, these people, in these people, there is a blindness coming upon them to keep them from perceiving the gospel, lest they should turn and their, and their sins be forgiven them. Now, I want to say five things about this uh, that I think will help us understand what's going on here. One, it is an overlooked reality that Jesus taught in parables at times to confuse certain people, at least temporarily. And, and you, you, and he, he was, you can see that, especially in his dealings with the Pharisees, but then you get to John six, John six, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're like, Jesus, you're like saying and doing things that are, that, that you're antagonizing certain people. And he is, he's antag- antagonizing some people. And it's like, it's like, he's riling them up almost on purpose. Because you listen, he could have explained some things better and make it more clear for the masses, but he chose not to because he he did it the way he did it in order to invoke the response that he got. That's that's the first thing, that this is an overlooked reality and, and Scripture becomes more clear, especially in the Gospels, when you realize that this is going on because what's happening is it's the process of the hardening of Israel. It's the hardening of Israel that's taking place even with Jesus in his time and his teaching. Second, just like Pharaoh, the people that are hearing these parables are not without prior issues. It's not an arbitrary thing because Jesus says in John 5, right before John 6, where he antagonizes them, in John chapter 5, verses 46, 46 and 47, listen to what he says to that very same crowd. He said, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So, oh, okay, so you're saying there's not just sort of this blank slate where Jesus comes and just messes with people. Rather, there's already a hardened heart. There's already a measure of unbelief in the hearts of the people that are listening to this. And he's simply uh, teaching in a way to allow them to maintain that unbelief. That's consistent with what he did with Pharaoh as well. That's the second thing. Number three, this hardening that came through Jesus' parables was temporary. That's very important. It was temporary. It was not hardening unto damnation. It wasn't hardening that would send them to hell. Yes, it was hardening to keep them from hearing and, and turning to the gospel at that moment. However, Many of those same men and women were there on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people got saved. And then on another moment, when over 5,000 people got saved. I mean, how many of the same people that, that, that are not understanding the, uh, the teachings of Jesus because of the parables and they're, they're remaining in their belief and their, and their rebellion, how many of those same, same people that didn't understand in that moment are now getting saved? So this is not a permanent lifelong hardening. That's not how hardening works in the scripture. It's not as though God God hardens it and then it's just game over. Otherwise, why did he have to harden Pharaoh so many times? You you, you don't have to keep hardening something if after one hardening it's just game over. That just doesn't seem to be the teaching of scripture, so it's temporary. Number four, there are two different purposes that Jesus seems to have for this temporary hardening for Israel. 
Why is he doing it this way? Why does he seem to be antagonizing people? Why is he teaching in a way that, that doesn't allow them to respond? Why is he hardening the, the, the Israel through this process? Well, the first reason, the most important is, is that it gets Jesus crucified. It's the process that he needed to go through to set the stage for him to be crucified, which is according to the plan of God for the salvation of mankind. So that's a very worthy cause. It's it's the rejection of Israel that gets Jesus crucified. Then after he's crucified, many of those very same people receive Christ. So so it's really about a timing issue. God God is sovereign and he's working in the lives of humankind to accomplish his will. The two, the the second end in in uh, what he was doing is that it brings the gospel to the Gentiles. So as Israel is hardened, uh, because we know, listen, Israel's history was, they were, we're God's chosen people, we're, gonna, we're just going to sort of revel, revel in that, and we don't really take the message to the rest of the world. God, through hardening Israel, forces the gospel out of Israel and into the Gentiles. But the good news is, like I said, it's temporary, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, so he's not saying that it's a permanent hardening of Israel. It's a temporary thing in order to cause the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. So, so God is at work. So the rejection of the gospel through the minority, which is Israel, brings the gospel to the majority, which is the Gentiles. And then number five, I want you to see that God, or Jesus, is, is doing this, this kind of blindness without supernaturally changing hearts. He's not just you know, getting into somebody's heart and tinkering with things. He does it with his teachings. Uh, He does it by bringing certain teachings and certain words into the minds of people that they then can accept or reject based on their previous condition. So so, uh, this is like a previous condition triggered by confrontation with certain messages that then result in a hardening that was temporary for many and for others it was permanent because they continue to reject the gospel. Which which is why you see the disciples dealing with this when they go, Jesus, these are some hard sayings. They're like... You know, I don't know how to deal with this, but they didn't reject him. They didn't be, you know, he said, do you want to leave me? He said, no, where else will, they said, where else will we go? Who, who else has the words of eternal life? So they didn't reject him because their hearts were not hardened like so many others. So those are the five truths about the way Jesus did things. And I want to look at one more passage of scripture. I'm going to summarize it for you because of time, but it's Jeremiah 18 and 19. It'd take too long to teach through two chapters of Jeremiah, but these chapters speak about the potter and the clay. And this is a passage, uh, the other passage of Scripture that goes into much more detail about the potter and the clay, where God here is the potter and Israel is the clay. And the first thing that happens in Jeremiah 18 and 19 is that the clay is marred in the potter's hand. In other words, it, excuse me, in other words, it doesn't work for the purpose of the potter, so the potter makes a different vessel out of it. The potter is trying to make one vessel out of it, and the clay is not working, and it's marred, so then he makes a different vessel out of it. That's the implication as I understand it. So second, second, the, the potter makes a new shape, and that sh- new shape will work. And, and the point, I think, in Jeremiah is, is that God is saying to Israel, if you're not going to do what I want, then I'm still going to find a use for you even in your rebellion. It's just that it won't be a vessel of honor in the process. 
Seems to be the message of Jeremiah 18 and 19. Then the third thing we learn, the application to Israel. God tells Jeremiah to tell Israel the story of the potter, the clay, and then tell them that the point is to repent or I will make you into a lesser vessel. Because, you know, you could be like the vase for the Valentine's Day flowers or you could be the spittoon or worse yet, you know, the chamber pot. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, we'll talk about that another time. But, uh, but, but there are different kinds of vessels out there. And he says, I'm going to find a use for you, whether it's for honor or for dishonor. I'm going to find a way to use you, even in your rebellion, I'm going to use you. And I think that's true for us as well. So, so if Israel would repent, God would fashion them into something better. That's what he said. So upon whose will does this rest? It rests upon Israel's will. Their choice to repent or not. That's the passage in Jeremiah. Fourth, what happens is they don't repent. They mock Jeremiah. They re- reject his message. And then God brings disaster upon them. And then he tells us why in Jeremiah 19.15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I'm about to bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it. Listen to this. Because they have stiffened their necks which is a euphemism that that means basically the same thing as a hardened heart. It says, I will not turn. My neck is stiff. I will not turn away to a different direction. My my direction is is fixed. I'm going to continue in rebellion. They stiffen their necks, it says, so that they might not heed my words. The passage in Jeremiah 18 and 19, it supports divine action of God and, and His sovereignty, but also supports the free will of man. And so does Romans. So does the story about Pharaoh. So do the parables of Jesus. It all consistently supports a divine hardening, but it's a justified judicial hardening that is not necessarily permanent. Okay, so so here we go. This is the end of the study. What I want to do to close, I want to give you nine conclusions, and I'm going to go as fast as I can. Nine conclusions I have about biblical hardening. This is to sum it all up. So I don't have to, these are going to be short because, because these are the, Drawing out all the things we've talked about, putting them in together in one, uh, one easy-to-swallow to capsule. So nine conclusions I have about biblical hardening, about how God hardens uh, a heart. So first of all, hardening does not change your mind, but it prevents you from changing your mind. Hardening doesn't make you do things that you don't want to do. Rather, you're stuck in the thing that you, that you want to do. You're stuck as you are. That, that's in the very verbs of hardening and the concept of stiff necks and things like this. You continue in the direction you're already going. That's the very nature of hardening. So it's not like you were, you were saying, I really want to get saved. And God's like, no, zap. And then suddenly you're like, oh, you know, I don't want to get saved now. That's not, that's not what it, we're getting at. Second, God may harden through specific acts or circumstances rather than heart surgery. He, he could actually do something to the heart, to the mind, to the will, but, or he could harden through circumstances or through acts like, he, like Jesus did, you know, with his teaching and being antagonistic. Uh, you know, sometimes, let me put it this way, sometimes people go through hard situations or maybe they're, they're hurt by the church or something like that, and then what happens is some people 
deal with it, they forgive, they find healing. But then other people, what happens is it draws out a hard, bitter heart. And God uses sometimes the, those different means or different situations to bring out a heart that has some issues in the first place that maybe they were hidden. Though he can, and he has the right to mess with hearts if he wants to, because he's the potter, we're the clay. He can do whatever he wants to with his, the things he made. He, 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 he doesn't have to do it judicially, but that's how God does it, because he is just. Number three, hardening isn't necessarily about salvation. Now, it may include salvation. It might be that someone becomes hardened to the gospel, but it can also include just a general attitude of rebellion toward God. It can include the fact that Pharaoh is like, I'm going to continue to say no to releasing the Israelites out of Egypt. And that wasn't salvation. That was just saying no to a command of God. And and, and that's where sometimes even as Christians, as believers, we can begin to get uh, a hardened heart toward God. And and we, we just feel far from God. And maybe it's a process where we're in going to get ourselves in danger in our, in our salvation because we say no to God and no to God and no to God. And then suddenly we say, man, I just feel so far from God. And it's not that he has moved. It's that we have begun to let our heart get, get harder. Number four, hardening is not necessarily complete or permanent. See, complete hardening would be where I'm hardened in every way against God. I'll always say no, and I'm stuck that way forever. That would be complete, and that would be permanent. And it's not necessarily either one of those things. In fact, I would say it's very rare that it's, that, that it's either one of those things. Otherwise, why is Pharaoh hardened multiple times? Otherwise, you know, it'd be like a, a switch that God flips, and then suddenly you're resistant to everything he ever does from that point on. A- additionally, I mean, think about this. You, you, you may, in case you didn't notice, Pharaoh ended up letting them go in the end. So even though he did harden his heart, he did have a moment of repentance. Now, he went back on that again later, but he did have that. We also see the thousands of people get saved on the day of Pentecost. And those are the same people that not long before would have been shouting, crucify him. So there's, a, there's, a, there's something that happened there that's not necessarily permanent. We also see in Romans eleven twenty three, 23, where it says about these very hardened Israelites, these hardened Israelites that Paul is writing about, it says, and these also, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So it is not necessarily permanent. I mean, praise God, that's, that's good news, isn't it? Five, God uses hardening a lot. A lot. Hardening is actually used a lot when you look at the parables of Jesus, when you look at the story of Pharaoh, when you look at future prophecy and the end times and the Antichrist, the issue of hardening, blindness upon Israel, this is used a lot. Number six, those who are hardened deserve it. They deserve it. It's not dispensed the way mercy is given. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is by mercy. But hardening? Oh, you you earn that. Judgment is earned. And and that's the case here. 
You know, they, they resist the revelation of God in Romans chapter 1. They disbelieve special revelation where Jesus said, you didn't believe Moses, so you won't believe me. That's John 5. Second Thessalonians passage says the same thing. They all speak of a previous position of a heart rejecting God, and then the result is a hardening of that heart. They even harden themselves many times like Pharaoh or like it is there in, in the passage in Jeremiah. Number seven. Though mercy is said not to be of works, hardening is never said to be unrelated to a person's works. And that's a mistake I think some people make in understanding this passage in Romans 9. Specifically, mercy is specifically not of works. And Paul really labors at that point all through Romans. But hardening is never said to be disassociated from works. In fact, I think... The opposite is implied that hardening is directly related to works. Number eight, it's not a choice between mercy and hardening in Scripture. God hardens specific people for specific purpose, for specific reasons, but it's not as though hardened means chosen for damnation. Much of Israel was hardened when Jesus was teaching, however, They were not hardened to the point that they could not respond to the gospel. But it was for a purpose that God was trying to accomplish at that moment. See, that's just not what the text says here. It's not a choice between mercy and hardening. It's a choice between mercy and rejecting mercy. And Paul just established that God, what he's trying to establish, he just establishes that God can harden. Uh, and that's his point in Romans 9. And, and, he, and, he, and his point is that he has hardened a large part of Israel during a season for a purpose. But as we, we read, they, they could still be grafted in back into the vine. And we'll get there in Romans chapter 10 and 11. And we'll see how glorious God's plan and, uh, for the future of Israel is and how much he loves them and, and how much the offer of, for salvation is, is still there for them. And number nine, this is the last one we're going to conclude with this and I I hate to say this but here it is you can become hardened this may be the most important thing for us as far as a personal application goes you can harden yourself you can rebel against God and then in turn receive a judicial hardening in your own heart and in your own life And this, I believe, can happen to believers as well because hardening, as we said, is not always a salvation issue. And it can happen to any of us where we can begin to harden our heart. We can begin to let a crust grow over the surface of our heart. And I think as we conclude, you know, when we hear this, what we need to be thinking is, is my heart soft right now to the Lord? That's, that's the question. Are, are all my defenses down before God? Are, are all my excuses nowhere to be found before the presence of all, Almighty God? A- am I the clay that, that wants to push away the, all the things that God wants to use to mold me and to shape me? You know, because it, it's fine and dandy to talk about God's hardening for hypothetical people or for random people or for ancient individuals. But you know what? I have to deal with me. I, I can harden my own heart. I heard a pastor tell a story about an experience he had with a man who was involved in a domestic abuse program. He had 
been going through that, and, and he had actually been, uh, um, he was in prison, and they actually uh, sent him home. They pardoned him, not really pardoned him, but they, 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 they basically said, uh, you can go home because he was uh, dying from cirrhosis of the liver. He had, been, he had been drinking himself into his grave, and he had cirrhosis of the liver. He was dying, and so they just said, uh, there's no point in dying in prison. Go home and die because there was just no hope for him. And so this man called this pastor, and he, and he said, and they'd had a relationship. And they'd be, he'd been in the church's domestic uh, abuse program, and, and, uh, and he said, Pastor, can I meet with you? Um, you know, I, I, just want to, I just want to have the last time to be able to say goodbye kind of thing. And, and so he, the pastor went and met with him, and his skin was, was all discolored, and his eyes were yellow. He's just not doing well at all. And, and that pastor went in there, and he, and he preached the gospel to him one last time. He, he said to him, he said, look, you literally have nothing to lose. Just, just turn your heart to Christ, repent, and, and put your, 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 truly put your faith in, in him. And that man looked at that pastor, and, and, he, and he, said, he said, I believe that it's true, but I, but I just can't do it. Because after all the years of rejecting God and rejecting God and rejecting God, he felt like he was in a place where he just couldn't do it. You know, I still, I still believe with all my heart that there's hope for people who say things like that. But, but you know what I, what I think he was doing? I think he was hardening his own heart. And that's not the only person that I, I've seen, you know, close to a deathbed who who takes a Bible that somebody has given to them and they set it down as far away as possible and they put magazines on top of it because they're hardening their hearts. Do not harden your heart. Not to your spouse, not to your family, not to your brother, your sister, your daughter, your your son, your friend, and certainly not to God. But you know what? If you would say, God, my heart is becoming hard, will you soften me, please? I Fully believe that, that God will answer that prayer. Fully believe it. He has in my life in times past when I've just felt my heart just, you know, getting stupid. Anybody ever felt your heart getting stupid? And I've just in the moment prayed, Lord, please help me. And he did. Would you bow your head and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your love. And we're, we're grateful for your, your heart toward us, Lord God, and which, which is so soft. But Lord, we, we don't for a second kid ourselves and act as if you're just a cosmic vending machine dispensing all of our wants and desires. You, you are a God of justice. You are a God who will, who will bring right and appropriate wrath upon the rebellion of mankind if we harden our hearts to you. Lord, we know that, that even if you have hardened the heart, there's still opportunity for a person to be saved, and we're grateful for that. We pray, first of all, Lord, for us. We, we want to have soft hearts, God. Help us to have soft hearts toward you, soft hearts toward others. Lord, give us thick skin, but soft hearts. And Father, we also pray for our family and our friends. We just lift them up. And I know that there are names that are coming to our minds right now. Their names, Lord, of family that are coming to our minds. And, and we would say, Lord, that, that person's heart is so hard. And we lift them up to you now, Lord. Just reach them, God, I pray. 
reach them like, like you reached the Apostle Paul. There was nobody harder than him, and yet you reached him. So God, reach them, that those that we love. Please reach them. We pray for their salvation, God. And we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. It's so important for us to ask that question of ourselves on a regular basis. Is my heart growing hard? And when we discover that our heart is beginning to grow hard, we need to go to God immediately and pray and say, Oh God, soften my heart. Don't let my heart be hard in your presence. I hope this has been a blessing and a challenge to you. And I want to invite you to join us Sunday morning for our service. We've started a new series called Jesus is Blank. And how you fill in that blank means everything as far as how your life is going to play out. So join us this Sunday. It's going to be a great day. If you can't be here in person, be sure to join us online. God bless you. Have a great afternoon. Oh,